Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Hallelujah. And you know what's awesome is that we don't have to just settle for meeting him one time. But we can have multiple encounters with him. Isn't that good news? I've met some people in my life that I wish I hadn't met. But I can't say that about Jesus. Amen. That being said, I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18 verse 1. Remember, from this point forward, uh, all the sermon cards uh, are through... Um, digital means, so on Dwelling Place Instagram story, front and back of the normal sermon cards there, you can screenshot them. Also, um, through the Bible app, you can access the notes and the scripture. Uh, Other forms, also on our webpage, dwellingplacemovement.org, underneath where the message uh, audio will be, the podcast, is as well. Uh, the sermon card. So make note of that moving forward uh, if you want to follow along or access that later. Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. Now, in turning there, some of you might already be curious or in your mind you're stumbling over the fact that this is a series on when people met Jesus. You're saying, well, wait a minute, Pastor Chad, we're going to the Old Testament. We're going to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. Well, bear with me and you'll find out why. Genesis chapter 18 verse 1. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre. And as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day, so he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, three men were standing by him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by and as much as you have come to your servant, they said, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent, and he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Then Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? 
Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. For she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Can I be clear up front? Can I be honest up front today? Life is hard. Life is hard. Can I be clear? Marriage, for those of us that are married or those of us that desire or are considering marriage, marriage is hard. Can I be clear to the people that are not parents here today? Parenting is hard. Life is hard, marriage is hard, being a mother is hard, being a father is hard, parenting is hard. Here in our passage, we're reading about a man and his wife and their journey, Abraham and Sarah. We find in the beginning in Genesis 12 about the start of this journey. In Genesis 12, Abram has an encounter with the Lord. And at this encounter, the Lord tells him to leave everything he's ever known. To leave his family, to leave his city, to leave his area. That the Lord has land for him and the Lord is going to make him a great nation. We follow the story then after this encounter with the Lord in Genesis 12. Abraham and Sarah are on the journey and they come to Egypt. And Abraham leads his wife, Sarah, to lie to the Egyptians to tell them that she is Abram's sister instead of saying that she is his wife. Why? Because she was a very attractive woman in her day and time. And the lie results of Sarai being taken by Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, into Pharaoh's house. Meanwhile, things are going well for Abram. Sarah's in a Pharaoh's house, separated from her husband, been taken by Pharaoh, and then the Egyptians and Pharaoh are treating Abraham well because they think that Sarah is Abram's sister. But God begins to plague Pharaoh's house for having another man's wife in his home. So Pharaoh discovers the lie and he kicks them both out of Egypt. Life is hard. So often we read scripture just from our current circumstance or need or being in 2021 but for a moment let's enter into the reality of this story this story of Abram this story of Sarah this story of a husband and a wife and their journey of following the Lord in Genesis 13 we find out that Abram has another he has another encounter with the Lord and this time he's told he says Abram you see the dust under your feet I will make your descendants as numerous as the dust under your feet. In Genesis 15, Abram encounters the Lord again. And this time the Lord tells him, he says, Listen, the air will come from your body. 
from your own body. And your descendants, Abram, look at the stars. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Sarah is yet to have a child. So at 76 years old, she tells Abram, who is 86 at the time, Hey, here's Hagar, my maidservant. Go into her. Maybe she is the means by which God will give us a child and an heir. In Genesis 17, Abram again encounters the Lord. And he's told, no, that was a mistake. It's not through Hagar. That Sarah, your wife, will have a child at the set time next year. And that Abram is now to be called Abraham instead of Abram. And Sarah is to be called Sarah instead of Sarah. Oh, the tensions of life in this age. Do you see the tensions throughout this story? Do you see the tensions in their marriage? Do you see the tensions in their journey of seeking to follow the Lord and God? Listen to me. Every wife, every mother, or every female who desires to one day be a wife should desire to be married to a man of God that hears from the Lord. I want to tell every woman in here who is single, if you desire to be married, you should desire to be married to a man of God that hears from God. Every wife in here, whether you're conscious of it or not, you want your husband to be a man who hears from the Lord. But so often... We have our own interpretation and picture of what this actually looks like. See, listen, think about this story. Sarah has a man of God. She has a man that hears from the Lord. This was very unique. I'll talk about it more. But Abram's family of origin and Abram's culture was not a family or a culture that heard from the Lord. They were idolaters. They were pagans. They practiced idolatry. And yet Abram begins to hear from the Lord, God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. This is not the norm. Can I tell you ladies today that having a man that pursues and seeks Jesus and hears from is not the norm. And yet that should always be your desire. However, we at times have our own picture of what that means. Because Sarah had a man of God, but it was causing her a lot of inconveniences. Sometimes wives or mothers or single ladies desiring to get married think if I could just get a Jesus man of God, then then so many trials and and so many tensions and, and so many difficulties will just be removed from life. No, no, no. Sarah had a man of God, a man that was encountering the Lord, hearing from the Lord, and yet her life is filled with inconveniences. Conveniences. Think about it. I think you've lived long enough to understand that you as a human, me as a human, we as humans, that once we get in a rut, a habit, a pattern, a rhythm, we don't like change too much. And Sarah's husband has an encounter with the Lord, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, God Almighty. And the encounter with the Lord, he's told, leave everything you've known before. Inconvenience. Go to a land that I will show you. Inconvenience. 
Hey, Abram, can I get the detailed plan? What's the five-year plan? Like exactly what's the route? Where are we going? Tell me, walk me through what all this looks like. Abram don't know, and yet he's a man of God. Inconvenience. Inconvenience. Because listen to me, ladies. Every man of God is on a journey of transformation. Just like every follower of Jesus is on a journey of transformation. So here's the reality. You want the reality this morning? The reality is, is that being married and being married with kids creates inconveniences regardless of if the husband or father is a man of God or not. Listen to me. Being married, period, creates tension, creates inconveniences. Having children, period, creates tension and inconveniences. But the danger, listen to me, wives here, followers of Jesus that are here today, the danger is for the wife of a man of God to allow the inconveniences to overshadow and blind her from the reality that being inconvenienced is inevitable in marriage and in parenting, but the benefits of having a husband who follows Jesus and desires to hear from him far, far outweighs in the long run any benefits from a marriage with an unbeliever. Even if the man of God is less attracted than the unbeliever you wanted to marry. Come on. Even if the unbeliever had more money and more social connections than the man of God that could hear from the Lord. There's inconveniences whether you're married to a man of God or an unbeliever. But in the long run, never, never despise the benefits of having a man or a husband who seeks to hear from God Almighty. See, here's the point. There will be inconveniences whether you serve the Lord or the devil. So why not serve the Lord? Life's going to be hard whether you serve the Lord or serve the devil. So why not serve the Lord Almighty? There will be inconveniences, single person. Whether you marry a follower of Jesus with genuine faith or an unbeliever, so why not obey and trust God and marry a follower of Jesus that has genuine pursuit of the kingdom of God? Now we're brought to our main text in Genesis 18. Three men are seen by Abram. Now that might not sound uh, too alarming to you because, you know, we live in a metropolitan area. There's people all over, but we're talking about they're out in the desert. And Abraham is sitting at the edge of his tent in the, to protect himself from the heat of the day. And he sees three men and he runs to them. And Abraham says, hey, why don't you come and refresh yourself under my tent? They said, okay, we'll do it. So they come. Now from Scripture, we understand who these three people are. Scripture informs us that two of the three are angels themselves. Scripture is very clear, though it might be new to you, and that's okay, but Scripture is very clear that angels are disembodied spirits. And yet, in the plan of God, God allows them at times to take on human form. So here are two angels. Who's the third person? The third person, watch this, is the Lord Himself. It's Jesus. This is Jesus appearing before what Scripture calls His coming in the flesh. Before his virgin birth, where he would be born of Mary, who knew no man. This is what scholars refer to as a theophany. 
an appearing of Jesus before His coming in the flesh. This is a type of appearing of Jesus before His promised appearing as the seed of woman. By the way, women don't have seed. That's why the virgin birth mattered and why it's a fact. But Genesis 18 and verse 6, we pick up our main story in text. says this, so Abraham hurried. He hurries into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. Oh, boy. Married people should understand the old boy. Here is Sarah again being told something. Except this time she's being told, quickly get to cooking. Sarah, I need you quickly to produce some Cracker Barrel environment in here. Here is Sarah once again being inconvenienced. Except this time she's being inconvenienced, watch this, immediately. And she's asked to quickly get to cooking. No time to plan. No time to run to the grocery. No time to make a a plan for the meal. No, get to cooking now. Genesis 18 and 9, the text continues. Then they said to him, to Abraham, where is Sarah your wife? So he said, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah your wife shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had... Past the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you. To the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Now, watch this. This is the first time Scripture tells us that Sarah is around Abraham when he's having an encounter with the Lord. And therefore, she does what any wife I've ever met does she is listening in. She's listening. Why? Because up to this point, it's only been Abram, so-called having these encounters from the Lord, and coming back to Sarah and saying, Hey, God Almighty spoke to me and said, we got to leave everything we know. He's got a land for us. Oh, by the way, we're going to have children, though we're past the age of bearing children. Up to this point, Sarah has only received communication from Abraham indirectly from the Lord the Lord has never directly spoken to her nor has she been there when the Lord supposedly spoke directly to Abram why does this matter if you're married you understand why it matters communication struggles and here I can imagine at times Sarah's wondering has my man lost it is he hearing his own voices is he making it up is this fantasy is it factual Because listen, the Lord Abraham is saying, has revealed himself, is not the Lord that the culture they grew up in talked about. They were pagans. They were idolaters. They were, whether they knew it or not, spirit demon worshipers. 
And so Abraham and what he's saying is happening to him and what he's being told and let in is completely contrary to their upbringing and everything they've known before. And so like any good wife, now that she's close, she's going to do what any wife I've ever met would do. She's listening in. I'm going to make sure there's no miscommunication. I'm going to make sure that Abraham is not just following a fantasy. Is this factual? And wouldn't you know it? That the very first time she's able to be there and to listen in, the conversation is about her. You got to love it. You got to love the tension of Scripture. You got to love God's confrontation to all of us. And she hears, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself. Now, don't kid yourself. Listen, listen, don't, don't miss it. This was not a positive laugh. This isn't her like being filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with faith and expectation and the joy of the Lord and, and out of that place of praise and faith, laughing. No, 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 no. This is not the laugh that comes from the blessing of experiences revealed presence. Listen, this is a laugh that is the equivalent of the laugh from a scoffer. See, listen. It's one thing for Sarah to laugh at the idea of her husband who she's known for decades now hearing from some unknown God that their parents and culture have never heard of. It's one thing to laugh about that. It's another thing to laugh at the Lord Himself. Now listen, we know that this laugh was like a laugh of the scoffer because the Lord said, and the text informs us what the Lord said, the Lord said, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, shall I surely bear a child since I'm old? See, listen to me. It was a laugh that offended the Lord. The Lord took it personally. The Lord said that the laugh was a laugh that was against him. It offended him. And why? Because is anything too hard for the Lord? Paul says that in the last days, the days we live in, that scoffers will increase. That a scoffing laugh regarding the authority of Scripture and the authority of one true God and only one way back to Him, the man Christ Jesus. The scoffers will increase laughing regarding the promises of God, the reliability of God's promises, the reliability of Jesus' return. But don't miss this. When the Lord said, why did Sarah laugh? He didn't say it to Sarah. When the Lord said, why did Sarah laugh? He said it to Abraham, the husband. Oh boy. Husbands, fathers, if you're like me, now you and I are tempted to laugh. Like, Lord. Lord. As humbly and respectfully as I know how, you know 
how you designed and made us fearfully in our mother's womb. And you created us uniquely as two separate individuals. Lord, if I may continue. Lord, you are the one through wisdom that established healthy boundaries. Lord, um, we're two unique persons with our unique responses and actions and behaviors to life's demands. Yes, we're to grow now in being one flesh, but Lord, listen, remember, if I may, I can't control my wife, nor can I make her not laugh. Lord, you've seen after 70 plus years of marriage how many jokes I've tried to tell her, I can't even make her laugh. So, Lord, again, humbly, respectfully, I'm sorry, but why are you looking at me? Ask my wife why she laughed. This is interesting. The Lord doesn't ask Sarah. The Lord asks Abraham, the husband, why the wife laughs. And it seems to be an unresolved issue of Scripture until you keep reading, and we find why this is, because Genesis 18. Verse 19 in the very same chapter, we get insight on why the Lord asked Abram. Because the Lord says, For I have known him, Abraham, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Wow, what do we have here? God says, listen, I have known Abraham. I have an intimate relationship with Abraham. I come and I have encounters with Abraham to empower him to be able to command his household and his wife in my ways so that I may bring about what I promised to them. Wow. Listen, Abraham, husband, dad, father, Single men thinking about being married. Abraham was empowered his encounters with the Lord to lead his household and wife in the commands and the ways of the Lord. He was imparted, he was empowered to impart the faith and the words that he had received from his encounters with the Lord to his wife and in his home. Now watch this. What did the Lord do to Abraham? The Lord, through his encounters with Abraham, reframed his worldview. Reframed his perspective and view about life and the future of life. How do we know that? Because Abraham has an encounter with the Lord. And Abraham says, look at the dust. He doesn't say, Abraham, no longer call it dust. He, he doesn't say, Abraham, like, no, 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 listen. He says, Abraham, take what you've known and I'm not going to change it from being dust under your feet. But I'm going to reframe your view and your worldview and your perspective about what's under your feet. You've always, when you felt dust, saw dust, walked on dust, thought dust. But now I'm reframing that when you walk on dust, feel dust, and have dust under your feet, think about as much dust it equates to how numerous your descendants will be. Then Abram has another encounter with the Lord. And what's he do? He not only frames the foundation of Abraham's walk, he 
reframes the perspective and the framework of Abraham's vision and expectation. He says, Abraham, look at the stars. God doesn't say, oh, by the way, you always thought they were stars, and they're not stars. <laughs> Welcome to reality. You've been in the matrix. No, no, he don't say that. He says, listen, it's the same stars, but I'm going to reframe your vision, your perspective, of when you look at the same situation you've always looked at. That now when you see the stars, I want you to see the stars represent my faithfulness, my ability, my promises. Represents is anything too difficult for the Lord. As the number of stars you see equates to the number of your descendants. God, through his encounters with Abraham, was reframing his worldview. And out of that, Abraham was empowered to reframe the worldview of his wife and their marriage and their household and their future. Oh, hallelujah. You getting this? Now watch this. So God questions Abraham. He questions the husband. Why did your wife, why did Sarah laugh? It's like God saying this. Listen, listen, listen. Abraham, listen, buddy. You could get Sarah to lie when you were convinced it would benefit you when you were fearful in Egypt. Why didn't you think you can't get her to believe when it will benefit my purposes on the earth? The reason God questions Abraham, he's saying, listen Abraham, you got her to lie to a king of a nation and say that you are brother and sister. If you had that ability to influence her, and to reframe your all's relationship as brother and sister to husband. Why are you trying to act like you don't have the ability to reframe her view of your all's future and faith and confidence in my word? Now watch this. Now we know that due to human sin and our frailty, none of us, none of us are an easy case. Because none of us are without sin. There ain't none of us. I know sometimes young people, you know, they think, perfect. But listen, none of us are an easy case. But we also know that Sarah was far from the hardest case. So Abraham couldn't say, well, Lord, you don't understand. I couldn't influence my wife. I mean, she's the hardest wife in the history of the planet. In fact, she might be alien. Is there aliens, God? Because she might be it. No, 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 listen. We know she wasn't an easy case because none of us are. We all have our dysfunctions. We all have areas we need to grow. But we know for sure Sarah was not the hardest case. How do we know that? Because Scripture highlights her respect and honor that she had for her husband Abraham by calling him Lord. In Genesis 18, 12, here's what her response was. After I've grown old, Shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Who's the Lord there? Her husband, Abraham. She has a heart of respect and honor from her husband that was demonstrated in what was appropriate for the culture in their day of calling him Lord. Now the Apostle Peter highlights this respect and honor in the New Testament in 1 Peter 3. He highlights Sarah as a positive demonstration of this honor. 
1 Peter 3, 5, and 6 says, For in this manner in former times the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Even New Testament highlights a quality of her heart towards her husband. Watch this. Whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Always didn't get that last part where it says, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror until this message. It's referring to our main text in Genesis 18. When she is asked by the husband, why did you laugh? And she lies and says, I did not laugh. And it says, because she feared. It's talking about the important need of us to confess and live transparently and accept reality and acknowledge our failures. To not be fearful of trying to act like we've never messed up or that we're perfect. That's what it's referring to. Now, let's go back to our main text. We also know when it comes to Abraham, the husband, watch this, that he wasn't an easy case. How do we know that? Because we all have issues. We all have dysfunction. We all have areas we need to grow and experience transformation. But listen to me. We also know that Abraham wasn't the hardest case. He wasn't the worst husband that ever lived. How do we know that? Because he called the king of kings, he called the Lord of lords, he called him Lord. In Genesis 18.3, Abraham called the Lord, my Lord. So we know we're not talking about the most hardened, most difficult husband that ever existed. He honored the Lord as the Lord. So watch this. Abraham made it easier for Sarah to respect, honor, and call him my Lord because he respected honored and called Jesus his Lord. And Sarah made it easier for Abraham to lead, protect, and teach her the commands and the ways of the Lord because she respected, honored, and called Abraham Lord. And so what have we been looking at? On the Lord questioning Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? In Genesis 18, 12, let's read it again. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also, and the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child, since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. Life is hard. Marriage is hard. Circumstances are hard. Parenting is hard. But is anything too hard for the Lord? Listen to me, husbands. Listen to me, fathers. Listen to me, future husbands. Listen to me, future fathers. We, out of our intimacy with Jesus, are empowered to create an atmosphere in our home and in our wife's heart and mind that says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Mothers are then crucial in creating in the atmosphere of the children's hearts and minds. Is anything too hard for the Lord. Martin Seligman says, exhaustive research tells us that young children listen to what their primary caretaker, usually their mother, says about causes of why things happen. And they tend to make this style their own. If the child has an optimistic mother, this is great. But it can be a disaster for the child if the child has a pessimistic mother. What type of worldview 
Listen, as followers of Jesus, as long as I'm here in relationship with you, which Lord willing, I plan to be a long time, I refuse to accept that as followers of Jesus, we live with a worldview that's just as pessimistic and negative in our heart, in our perceptions, in our expectations, in our language than an unbeliever that doesn't have or hasn't ever had encounters with the Lord Almighty who says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Can I hear an amen? Martin goes on to say, once the parents get impatient and stop answering the never-ending why questions, children get their answers in other ways. Mostly, they listen closely when you spontaneously explain why things happen, which you do on average about once a minute during a speech. Your children hang on every word of the explanations you give. Particularly, watch this, when something goes wrong. Not only do they listen for the particulars of what you say, but they listen keenly to its formal properties. Whether the cause you cite is, number one, permanent or temporary. Secondly, specific or pervasive. Thirdly, your fault or someone else's. The way your mother talked about the world to you when you were a child had a marked influence on your explanatory style. Did you see it? It's what is called the three Ps by counselors, psychologists, even Christian counselors and Christian psychologists of what is called permanent, pervasive, and personal explanatory style. That when life is hard, when there's difficult events, when there's obstacles, when there's the valley seasons of life, when there are difficulties, how do you explain the negative events that occur? Do they become permanent? It will always be this way. Do they become pervasive? Everybody, every man, every wife, every politician, every teacher. Do they become everywhere? The problem becomes pervasive or, and then is it personal? It's because I'm an idiot, I'm a failure, I'm a fool. The three Ps of a pessimistic worldview. Now watch this. We have been highlighting and ministering, weaving throughout what God's been saying to this community lately, the values of biblical character qualities that you find in Scripture like resilience. Another word is long-suffering. Like a hard work ethic. Persistence. Pursuit. To persistently pursue. To persistently be resilient. And so often you find people that might start out persistent, pursuing, having a hard work ethic. But at time, they give up. They no longer persist. While others continue to persist. Continue obstacle after obstacle to endure. And the reason, the difference between the two... The main underlying factor and distinguishing factor is whether their worldview was optimistic or pessimistic. How does the person, how do you as an individual explain to yourself when negative events and, and disappointments and hardships happen in life? If you explain it through the three Ps, permanent, pervasive, and personally, then it undermines any resilience, any desire to continue, any persistence. But if you'll get what all followers of Jesus are called to get, an optimistic biblical worldview, 
is anything too hard for the Lord. Martin goes on to say, Seligman, your habitual way of explaining bad events, your explanatory style is more than just words you mouth when you fail. It is a habit of thought learned in childhood and adolescence. Your explanatory style stems directly from your view of your place in the world, whether you think you are valuable and deserving or worthless and hopeless. It is the hallmark of whether you are an optimist or a pessimist. God begins to say, I'll need humans on the earth after sin and its effects have blinded them for me being the only true God. And cultures are now involved in idolatry and worship, mere objects made by their own hands, objects that have eyes but cannot see, hands but cannot heal, feet but cannot move. And so I'm going to encounter Abram. And he encounters Abram. And he begins to start the process of doing what? Of seeking to reframe for Abram the worldview. What's under his feet? What's the foundation? What's the framework and the possibilities for life? So that he, out of that reframing, would be empowered to reframe for his wife and for his children. And a legacy of faith, a biblical, optimistic worldview of, is anything too hard for the Lord? But Genesis 18, 15, we read this. But Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Notice that. She denied it. First, you and I must understand, a biblical optimistic worldview is not denying current reality. Biblical faith is not denying current reality. He didn't say, Abram, everybody else thinks those are stars, but they're not stars. (laughs) No, no. He just reframed what was already there. Life is hard, but God wants to reframe how we view and talk about and see what's already there. So a biblical, optimistic worldview is not denying pain. It's not denying that we're grieving. It's not denying that we're hurting. A biblical, optimistic worldview is not denying that life is hard. For the mother today, listen, a biblical optimistic worldview is not denying that parenting is hard. Faith and a relationship with God in a biblical worldview acknowledges current reality, current experience. It just doesn't stay there. See, listen to me. I don't follow all of you all on social media because I want to be empowered to love you and really care about you and be faithful serving you. And my concern, if I did and I saw all the stuff you post or that, I really wouldn't like or feel really empowered to serve you. So I don't keep up with much of that. Just letting you know. I want to be faithful in loving you and serving you. But if there was a danger in our church, I don't think it's a danger in the people of our church or the mothers in our church acknowledging that life is hard, parenting is hard, marriage is hard. I don't think that we're probably vulnerable to deny that. My concern as followers of Jesus is that after we acknowledge that marriage is hard and parenting is hard and life is hard, that we stay there. Because a biblical optimistic worldview can't deny it, must acknowledge it, but it doesn't stay there. 
It doesn't stay there. So what next is a biblical optimistic worldview embrace? Listen, a biblical optimistic worldview, secondly, is not allowing the reality of pain and things being hard to paint the whole picture. Don't allow the current obstacle, the current pain, the current difficulty, the current unknown, the current valley. Biblical optimistic worldview is don't allow the current pain and problem to define and color the whole picture and view of your future and what's available. A biblical optimistic worldview is not allowing the reality of pain and things being difficult to dictate all of our expectation for life and for the future. So here's what a biblical optimistic worldview is. A biblical optimistic worldview is acknowledging that life is hard, but it's not too hard for the Lord. A biblical optimistic worldview for a mother is acknowledging that parenting is hard, but not too hard for the Lord. A biblical optimistic worldview for the husband is acknowledging that leading your wife and home in the commands and ways of the Lord is hard, but not too hard for the Lord. A biblical optimistic worldview for a wife is acknowledging that respecting and honoring your husband is hard, but not too hard for the Lord. Sarah scoffed, but needed a worldview. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Genesis 18 and verse 12, again it says, Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, Come on, Jesse, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord at the appointed time? I will return to you. Don't miss it. Listen, listen, listen in. Sarah's question is foundationally this. Ready? Shall I have pleasure after pain? The reason she scoffs is because she knows what you and I know. That life is hard, marriage is hard, parenting is hard, and there's pain involved. Inconveniences involved. And the fundamental, the foundational question that she's asking that calls her to scoff is can I surely have pleasure after pain? You know what? This is not just Sarah's question. This is foundationally the question of humanity and the age we live in. Shall I have pleasure after pain? Shall we have pleasure after the fall? Shall we have pleasure after the curse on the earth? Shall we have pleasure after failure? Shall we have pleasure after our sin, the brokenness of humanity? This is foundationally the question 
of the mother with children under the age of 14 still in the house. Shall I have pleasure after pain? Now watch this. How do we know that foundationally that's the heart of the question? Because listen, when she says, shall I have pleasure? Pleasure in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word for Eden. What does that mean? We're in the book of Genesis, friend. If you're not aware that in the beginning, the book of Genesis, when it talks about how God created the heavens and the earth, and He created mankind, Adam and Eve, and we find the original intent on why God made the earth and the heavens and put us here. He placed mankind, the first man, the first woman, the first marriage. He placed them in a garden of Eden. He placed them in a garden of pleasure. Listen, it was consistent, constant, never wavering pleasure in the garden until they sinned. And after they sinned, the Bible says that God thrust them, He banned them, He pushed them out of the garden of pleasure and He put two angels with flaming swords to guard the way back to the Garden of Eden, the Garden of consistent, unwavering pleasure. And He tells Eve, now a result of your sin is that even in childbearing, there will be pain. The pain of labor is part now of the effects of sin. Now don't miss it, don't miss it, don't miss it, don't miss it, don't miss it. Now here in our main text, it's Sarah's first encounter. Her first encounter with the Lord, with Jesus. She's listening to Abram's interaction with two angels and the flaming sword of God's Word, Jesus. Jesus who said, I came on the earth to draw a sword. Jesus, who said, I came on earth to kindle fire. Jesus is the flaming sword, the flaming Word of God. Here she is when she's wondering, can pleasure come after pain? Is there a way back to the Garden of Eden, to the Garden of Pleasure after pain, after sin, after the curse, after the failure of mankind? Is there a way? And here two angels showed up with the flaming sword of God's Son in theophany form. She says to herself, after growing old, after pain, after the delay of the promise, after all the wondering, after all the delay, shall I have pleasure? And God says, He steps in right to the question. He steps right into the pain. And He says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? And God's here today and He's stepping into your moment. He's stepping into your question. He's stepping into your question. He's stepping into the context and the soul of your heart and your mind and your circumstance. And He's saying, is anything too hard for the Lord? Mothers, it is hard. But is anything too hard for the Lord? Mothers, your question in your heart is, can there still be pleasure at the pain of child rearing? Can there still be pleasure after these difficult years? And the Lord says, is there anything too hard for the Lord? See, God gave, listen, He gave you mothers. He gave us a small example, a 
small prototype, a small pattern, that the answer is yes, pleasure can come after pain. That nothing's too difficult for the Lord. And He gave it in the very birth of the child. Jesus Himself talked about this pattern. He says that when the time has come for a child to be born, that instantly a woman is thrust into the pain and the grief of labor. And the difficulty of labor. But then it says that she no longer remembers the pain. When she holds the child for joy, that a human being has been born into the world. Jesus says, think back, think back. Can there be pleasure after pain? He says, think back to when you gave birth to that child. Think of all the pain. And yet right after the pain, when you held the child, you instantly no longer remembered the pain. He says, just like that, it's the same for seasons of life. Just like that, it's for every human. God's made a way that after our pain, pleasure still can come. That after we humans have turned all our own way and none of us are good and we've all sinned, God's made a way for pleasure, a way for us to go back to Eden, to go back to eternal life, to go back to right fellowship with the Father through Jesus, the flaming sword, the only entrance into the kingdom of God, that if one will repent and bow down and allow Jesus to be Lord, He'll cleanse, He'll change, He'll grant us entrance back to the garden of pleasure for eternity mothers this is the call and there's nothing too hard for the Lord the call is to create a garden in the heart and mind of your children of the biblical worldview of optimism that yes it is hard yes there's obstacles yes there are difficulties yes there are haters yes there are people against you but there's nothing too hard for the Lord and if God be for you, who can be against you? And even if all forsake you, the Lord will stand with you. Make you able to stand. Maybe you're here today, you say, well, you don't understand my upbringing. I'm not a mother, but I'm old in life. But Jesus it, it says to you, regardless of your upbringing, that even if your mother and father forsake you, I, the Lord, will be with you. Husbands, fathers, future husbands, out of our intimacy with Jesus, we are empowered to create an atmosphere in our home and to serve our wives by establishing a biblical, optimistic worldview is anything too hard for the Lord. We don't deny it's hard. We don't deny there's tensions. We don't deny there's obstacles. We don't deny that there's the flux of emotions and valleys. But we have been empowered out of our intimacy with Jesus to write in the context of our home to declare that is anything too difficult for the Lord. The maker of heaven and earth. The one who made a way back to the garden of pleasure through Jesus. That when humanity thought there's no way to have shame and guilt and sins forgiven, God made a way when there wasn't a way. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I know some of you, you're dealing with hard heads. I know some of you, you're dealing with hard hearts. But is anything too difficult for the Lord? God has made a way through Jesus back to the garden, the garden of pleasure. The way and the entrance is through bowing and surrendering to His Lordship to have eternal life, to live in eternity in what was God's original intent from the beginning. To live in a constant state of pleasure. There will be no pain. There will be no tears. There will be no tension. There will be no strife. There will be no crying. Because nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. 
If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.